So um, our reading today is Luke 4, 14 to 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of, blind, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your, your hometown what, you have heard that you, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy. In the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Uh, thanks Liz. And yeah, we will be missing you lots. Uh, good, good afternoon all. Really good to see you all. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Um, please have your Bibles open at Luke chapter 4 so you can follow along uh, as we look at this together. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Loving Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your words. We thank you that you help us see new things and uh, remind us of truths that we may have forgotten and I just ask that today that this passage would, would challenge us and encourage us uh, and uh, lead us to rejoice uh, because of your love for us. Amen. Uh, put your hand up if you like giving to charity. Your hand up if you like giving to charity. So that's most of us if not all of us. Uh, put your hand up if you like accepting charity. If you like receiving charity less less hands there's a few going up but there's less that's that's a bit of a harder question isn't it to answer we give to charity and we like doing that and it's good to uh, be generous and to show care care for people in need but what about when we're the ones who might need to accept someone else's charity what if you were for example uh, had to go and use a food bank instead of maybe donating to a food bank how do you feel about that I wonder what, what would be going through your mind. Would you find it embarrassing or humiliating? Would you be angry at your circumstances in some way? I wonder what, 
what goes on in our heart, why, why we find that difficult. I guess in some sense, don't we, we like to look like we're doing well. We look like we want to make sure that everyone thinks everything's fine. And it's hard for us to accept when that's not the case, when we actually we need help and need something. But do you know what? There should not be shame when we need something in asking for help, in accepting help, when we're in need. But if we're honest, do we sometimes think, I'm glad, I'm glad that's not me. Well, in our passage we'll get to today, Jesus is speaking to this group from the synagogue and what we'll see is they don't want to admit their need. And their response to Jesus will reveal something really integral, really core to the gospel that we need to understand for ourselves. Uh, we started chapter 4 last week. Jim uh, preached on the passage where Jesus is tempted and tested in the wilderness. Uh, and Satan uh, speaks to him and tempts him in different ways. And we saw it was deadly serious. He was tr- Satan was trying to lead Jesus away from trusting God. But Jesus, where we always fail, where we can fail, he always stands firm. And he was faithful. And he used scripture to douse the flames of that temptation. And ultimately leaves the wilderness in victory. Uh, and it gives us great hope because we, we follow a saviour who can stand firm against temptation when we cannot. And then we see what happens next. You see in verse 14 he goes to Galilee, the sort of part of the country where he grew up. He goes in the power of the spirit. He goes led by God. He is teaching He's doing miracles uh, wherever he goes. But then he goes to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth, where he's known really well. And what we see happening is quite shocking, quite surprising. That's what we're going to be thinking about today. So here's my first heading. Jesus accepted. Jesus accepted. Uh, He goes to Nazareth. It it wasn't a big, it wasn't a particularly significant place. Uh, In fact, in John's Gospel, when... uh, one of Jesus' future disciples hears that Jesus is from Nazareth. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? That's, that's the reaction that people had when they heard the word Nazareth. Nazareth. <laughs> maybe, maybe there are other places, maybe there are towns or places you can think of in the UK which maybe have that kind of reputation. So that was the sort of place. Stevenage. Why are you saying that? <laughs> uh, but it was big enough to have a synagogue. And that's where Jesus goes on the Sabbath. That's the obvious thing to do, isn't it? He was Jewish. He wanted to worship God. He wanted to to connect with people, teach people on the Sabbath day. And actually, we don't get the details in the passage because everyone would have known how the synagogue worked. But when you, you know, was doing some study, reading up on this, and actually the service that happened in the synagogue all those years ago is actually not dissimilar to even what we do today uh, as a church. So they would have had readings and prayers. They would have had things that they said together, uh, sort of liturgy type things. Uh, They had two readings from scripture, one from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then one from the prophets. Then someone would stand up and and give a sermon, would would speak about the passages, and they'd close in prayer. And as I was reading about it, I thought, that's really reassuring, isn't it, that actually Throughout the years, God kind of sets a pattern of worship, sets what he wants us to do, and that's what we seek to do today as well. Anyway, Jesus, it was likely invited by the leaders of the synagogue there. He was becoming well-known. He you know, probably was, people were packed in to come and hear what, what he had to say, see what he was going to do, perhaps. 
This is where he was from. This is his hometown. It was like the hometown boy made good. You know, he's, he's returned. Uh, and they, they, they want to sort of celebrate that in some sense. So they settle down. And we see in verse 17, he's given this scroll, the book of Isaiah from part of the Old Testament and the prophets. He reads from it. We'll, we'll come back to what he says. And there's just this silence in the room. Every eye is fixed on him. What, what's he going to do next? What's he going to say? The atmosphere must have been electric. You know, something really exciting. And we don't get his whole sermon. We just get what he begins with. You see verse 21? He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is an amazing statement, isn't it? He's saying, look, this is coming true right at this second, right now. As I speak to you, that prophecy from about 700 years ago is coming true. That, that was about me. That's what he's saying. And everyone is amazed at that. You see that in verse 22. No one else preaches like this. They're, they're, they're staggered at what he has to say. He's come with good news. And that's what we see in the, the, the verses that he reads. It's from Isaiah chapter 61. And there's a bit of Isaiah 58 too. Let's just look through that briefly. Look at that, 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 that passage that he reads. Let's think about what it, what it means. Verse 18 of Luke, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. When someone is anointed, it's like they're chosen for a task. They're chosen to do something. And God is with him. The Spirit is on him to do a special task. And we saw that, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago in the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit comes down uh, on Jesus and it's saying that he has chosen, he has been anointed, he, he has set out for a task. So what is this task? Well, there's lots there, but he sums it up in verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That's not a literal year. It's talking about a time where God shows his love and his mercy and his grace and, and treats people with favour. So when Isaiah wrote it, he was, he was talking about the, the time that God's people would be restored from exile. They would be brought back into the lands. And the year of the Lord's favour, it, it, it kind of points all the way back to Leviticus, the kind of law that they were given before they got to the promised land. And there's this concept of the year of jubilee, a jubilee year. You can go to Leviticus 25 and read about that. It was every 50 years they had a year of jubilee. And it was kind of a proclamation throughout the land of, of liberty and freedom and restoration for people who were in need. And so Jesus is saying that a year, a time of jubilee is here, that a new start is coming. And it's good news for, 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 for people who hear that and understand that. It's good news for the poor. Do you see that in verse 18? Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. You see this, the concept, the key concept is that one of freedom, that one of being released. It's good news for the poor, it's good news for those on the edge of society, those who are struggling to get by, those who didn't have anywhere else to turn. It meant cancelled debt, it meant new hope for them. Freedom for prisoners. He had come to bring freedom for people who were trapped and imprisoned in sin. He was providing a way for, to break free from that. He was here to recover the sight of the blind. He did that literally, didn't he? He, he healed people so they could see. 
but he's also the light of the world. He, he kind of came to heal spiritual blindness, help people see the truth, the reality about him, and to set the oppressed uh, free. Those who maybe were suffering, maybe suffering for their faith, or that were faithful and struggling, maybe in humble circumstances, the oppressed were set free and restored and given life. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That's a sort of amazing manifesto to sort of lay out and say, that's what I'm here to do. And that's what Jesus said. This is happening. This is what I've come to do. No wonder they were amazed at what he was teaching. But then, do you see also, there's this question that they ask at the end of verse 22. Right at the end, they're amazed, and then they say, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And actually what we see is that leading to Jesus rejected. Jesus rejected. The problem was they, they thought they knew Jesus really well. Joseph, he's the guy, he's Joseph's son, he's the carpenter's lad. He's grown up around him. And now he's claiming to be the Messiah? That's delusions of grandeur if you ask me. Where's the proof? They wanted proof. And that's when Jesus says to them, he knows what's going on in their hearts. You see, verse 23. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. The crowd have been hearing about what Jesus has been doing in Galilee. Teaching, but also healing and opening blind eyes and casting out demons. And so rather than trying to engage with what Jesus has said... They just want him to kind of do his thing, you know? It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever seen a TV interview of like a famous impressionist where they, they do impressions of famous people. And the interviewer doesn't really want to hear the, you know, the opinions of this person. They just want to hear the catchphrase or the famous voice that this person can do. And, you know, the, the interview's just strained until the person gives in and, you know, does the impression. It's a little bit like that. They just want Jesus to do a miracle or something. And Jesus challenges them strongly. Do you see what he says in verse 24? Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. You can look these up in the Bible. You can see in 1 Kings 17, uh, God sends Elijah to this widow uh, who is gathering sticks to make a kind of final fire and cook the last little bit of bread that she's got before her and her boy succumb to the famine. And Elijah asks for some of that bread and promises that God will provide. And so she does what he says. And sure enough, this amazing miracle happens that, the, that her supplies never run dry throughout the famine. She always has enough to eat for her and her son. And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, this Syrian, Naaman, is sent to Elisha with this awful case of leprosy. And he's quite an important person. And Elisha doesn't even see him. Just sends a servant out and says, go and wash in the river. And he is angry about that. He's not impressed that he's come all this way and that's what he's told. But in the end, 
He realises he's got no hope other than this. He's, he's persuaded by his friends to do it. And sure enough, he's healed. He did what was said and he was healed. So Jesus tells these stories and all of a sudden the tone changes. Do you see? Immediately. Verse 28. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That must have been an amazing moment, mustn't it? This crowd kind of grabbing him, pushing him up the hill and just... I think miraculously just walked through and went on his way. They were looking for a miracle, maybe they got one in the end. But why are they so angry? What does Jesus said that makes them angry enough that they ignore the, the law? They try and lynch Jesus, they try and throw him off the cliff so they can stone him and kill him. And even to do that on the Sabbath, they would never do that on, on the Sabbath, on that rest day. They are deeply offended and angry by what he has said. So why? why? Why are they so angry? Well, there's two things, I guess, to kind of to see. Firstly, because the people he's talking about, the people of Sidon, the people of Syria, were, were particularly despised areas. They were outside of Israel. They were, uh, they were Gentiles. And Jesus is sort of commending their, their faith and saying, look, all these people in, in God's land at those times, and God healed the Gentiles. That actually showed more faith uh, and less rejection of him. See what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, you are less spiritual and less wise than Gentiles. And that was really offensive to them. I was trying to think, you know, what, what might it look like for that today? If, imagine if we invited some great evangelists to come and speak to us uh, here in Kenilworth to come and tell the gospel to us. And... I don't know, the people turn up, but they're not, they don't want to, they don't want to know, they're not interested, they're not listening, they're, 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 they're looking for their own sort of thing. And so the speaker says, well, look, forget it, why, why am I bothering with you lot if you don't want to know? I'm going to Coventry. I reckon, you know, you're, you're the people in Kenworth, you're less spiritual and less wise than the people in Coventry. They're much more likely to respond to the good news of the gospel. How would you feel if that was the case. Maybe hurt our pride a little bit. Let's be honest, since being in Kenilworth I've noticed there's a bit of an air of superiority over our close-by uh, neighbouring city. And apologies to those who live in Coventry, let me be clear on that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not affirming that uh, stereotype. Definitely don't be afraid to stick up for Coventry. And it's a good city. But it would offend us perhaps, wouldn't it? A little bit, if we're honest. That's just a hint of how offended the Jews were when they were told that the Gentiles were better than them. But the point is deeper than that. Do you see what, why he gives these examples? What happens in these cases with the widow and with this guy Naaman? They listen to the prophet before they get any sign, any proof that actually it's going to happen. Do you see? They obey and then they receive the, the blessing, the healing, the provision. They don't get a sign first. They obey first. They listen first. And that's what the difference is. The people of Nazareth, they weren't listening. They wanted Jesus to do some miracles and, and prove himself that way. And he's saying, you've missed the point. You, you haven't got what I've come to do. 
They were supposed to see themselves in those descriptions of the poor and the prisoners and the blind and the oppressed. And instead what happens? That they're proud enough and they're blinded to the reality of their spiritual condition. They reject Jesus. So what about us? What about us today? What does this passage have to speak to us today? Because the message is the same. We see why Jesus came. Jesus came to set people free. The poor, the blind, the oppressed. What do we need to do to understand this? Well, in order to find freedom, the first step for us is to, to recognise our spiritual needs. Recognise our, our spiritual poverty, perhaps. Remember, at the start of the sermon, I, I asked how you would feel if you were in desperate need, if you had to accept charity from others. And I don't know your hearts, I don't know how you would feel about that. But there, there's pride in us, isn't there, that it might be hard to do that. Surely it's even harder, isn't it, to kind of consider our moral and our spiritual kind of need and our, our poverty in that way, that actually, on our own, we've got nothing at all to give to God. Our sin affects every part of us. It, 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 it's a great barrier. These verses from the book of Psalms explain it well. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. That's the spiritual condition of mankind, of all of us. There is no one who does good. That's the reality of our hearts. And really the first step, if we're going to receive anything from Jesus, is accepting that reality. Do you recognise that in yourself? That sin imprisons us and traps us in selfish and selfish patterns and behaviours and thoughts. It blinds us. We cannot see the truth on our own. We think we're okay until actually God opens our eyes and helps us see our needs. Our sinful attitude says, I don't need you, God. I'm okay on my own. But we're not. And if we're honest, living in a wealthy town, in a wealthy country, makes it that much harder, doesn't it, to accept that? Because we're used to being able to do things on our own, in our own strength. And yet this is something we, we cannot do. We've got to stop and recognise that we, we need help. We desperately need help. Uh, our sin, we cannot be saved from our sin on our own. And if you're not a Christian here today, I just wonder if anything I've said is, is resonating with you at all. Maybe you're just aware that there's this kind of deep, nagging hole. That reality in your heart, that, that you're aware that there's something wrong. That there's a problem here and you're not sure what the answer is. And that maybe if people really knew what was going on inside, they'd want nothing to do with you. Maybe you're feeling trapped in some behaviour, in some action that you just cannot seem to change and you're not sure what to do. What hope is there? The hope is Jesus. And that's what we need. The, sec um, the second question is this. Will you accept that only Jesus can set you, set you free? Only Jesus can set you free. Remember why he came in verse 19? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. To share good news with the spiritually bankrupt. To set people free from slavery to sin. To bring sight to spiritually blind eyes. To set 
us free, to set people free. And he did that, not just by living a perfect life in our place, for succeeding where we fail, but he did it by laying down that perfect life for us. He died on a cross, not because he deserved it, but because we deserve it, because we have that deep need within us, because we cannot save ourselves. When he died, he was, he was accepting our debt, accepting our, our, our spiritual poverty, taking it on himself, on his own shoulders, bearing the weight of all of our evil, all of the wrong that we have done, bearing it himself, taking it on himself. Can you imagine the, the, the agony they faced? And when he died, he said, it is finished. It is finished. The price was paid. God's wrath was satisfied and our debts are gone. Wiped clean forever. Past, present, future sin, all dealt with completely. Thanks to Jesus. That's what happens at the cross. That is the amazing reality of what Jesus came to do. And then he rose again. When he came back to life, it was, it was further proof that debt had been paid because death you know, no longer applied to him. It means we can follow him, we can trust him, we can live for him, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he cares for us. That is amazing, isn't it? But you see, the first step, in order to experience that, that freedom that Jesus gives us, we've got to start with a place of accepting that we can't do it ourselves, we cannot contribute to our salvation at all. That was the problem with the, the folk in the synagogue there. They didn't see that need, they maybe thought their heritage, their traditions were enough. They were good, upright citizens. They, they weren't spiritually poor. They weren't prisoners. They were angry at the suggestion that maybe the Gentiles were, were, were more faithful than them in that place. Are there ever similar things in our lives that, that might prevent us from seeing that need? Maybe we think, well, I've always been to church. I always go to church. It's just the right thing to do. I don't really engage with it all that much. But as long as I'm in church, I'm doing the right thing. Maybe we end up thinking internally, I'm a pretty good person, actually. I don't, look, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Yeah, if God's got a standard, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be, I'm going to be all right. Maybe you're angry at the suggestion. How dare you suggest that, that there's something wrong in my heart? You don't know, you don't know me. And that's true, I don't know your hearts. But, but God knows our hearts, and the, the verses from Psalms, he looks down and he sees that there is no one good. And that's true, isn't it? You compare yourself with the holy perfection of God who created everything. And you realise how, how far short we have fallen. How far away we are from that kind of perfect standard because of our sin, because of the ways we've rejected God. We have to accept that. That's the starting point. It's recognising that. Coming to God in repentance. Coming empty-handed. Honest about your kind of spiritual condition. Uh, I found a quote as I was preparing from a Puritan called Thomas Watson and he said this if the hand is full of pebbles it cannot receive gold if the hand is full of pebbles it cannot receive gold and so it's do we come to God kind of with our hands full of pebbles worthless attempts trying to, to offer something to him say look God look at these pebbles aren't they good enough look what I've done here well, look what I've done there look at, look at all these things and it's foolish. We haven't understood for trying to sort of earn it with God that, in that way. 
The reality is if we come to Jesus with anything, we are rejecting him. Because we're saying to him, what you have done for me is not enough. That's, 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 that's what we're saying. That's, that's an attitude of rejection, isn't it? Saying, you, you've, you've done everything for me, but actually I can't accept that that's enough. I, I've got to do something myself. And that's not the case. If we come to Jesus with nothing, that's when we gain everything. It's got to start with that. And I still remember vividly the first time I, I think I've truly grasped that deep in my heart. Uh, remember I was praying with some friends and just got this wave, this deep sense, this deep realisation. It was like the eyes of my heart were open and I realised just how horrible and sinful I was. And it was awful. I was in tears. I was crying out. I just realised how hideous and how little I deserved anything. And yet at the same time, I had this amazing realisation that Jesus had come for me. That he loved me, that he, had, he loved me at that point, that he had taken the punishment I deserved and, and now somehow I was God's son and I was loved and freed and saved. And so I had this amazing moment of kind of complete emptiness. I had nothing to offer God. Just this despair at my sinful heart. And that was the moment, just this amazing joy filled me that, that, that even though Jesus knew the depths of my heart, knew how sinful I was, he loved me at that point. He loved me as I was. He welcomed me with nothing in my hands. And he saved me. He loves me. And he loves you. And that's what you can find. You come to him empty-handed. You find everything. You find the love and the, the joy and the, the welcome into God's family. So friends, if, again, if you're not trusting Jesus today, if you're not committed to following him as a Christian, Maybe at least you've heard something of what that offer means. Of what it means to come with nothing and find everything. Find hope and forgiveness and, and life. And become God's child. That is a staggering thing. And for those of us who are believers, there's lots of implications, I think, that come from this. You know, He sets us free in order to live for him. In order that we don't always sin. That sin is no longer inevitable. We're not imprisoned in the same way because his spirit enables us to change. But I feel like today it's probably enough for us just to remember that actually we still come to him empty-handed. We don't live for Christ to kind of earn his approval, to kind of somehow add some pebbles into our hands. We live for him because we are accepted and loved and nothing we can do can change that. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the heart of it is his love for us. So maybe if, if that's something you've forgotten or, or fall into that trap of trying to earn his approval somehow and you're, ending, and you're feeling really fearful at the minute because you're aware of your sin and you're not sure if God still loves you because you've this and that and all these things, then let me remind you to empty your hand of pebbles so you can receive the, the golden glory of the gospel. The wonderful reality that his love never ends. It does not cease. It, it cannot leave you once you give your life to him. Once you trust him and put your faith in him. It's an encouraging thought, I hope. I hope it's been an encouragement for you listening to this. It's maybe challenging, isn't it, to accept our spiritual need. We don't like to be humbled in that way, but, but God can bring us to that point where we realise we've got nothing. 
And then it's wonderful, isn't it? See, Jesus came for people like you and me who have got nothing and he makes all the difference. He changes our lives. He, he, he gives us hope and life and, and everything. We live in response to that, don't we? I thought this quote from Tim Keller really sums it up perfectly. I thought I'd finish with this. Uh, and here it is. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Father, would you humble us today? Would you help us remember that we must come to you empty-handed? There's nothing we do to kind of prove ourselves or earn our salvation. You do it all. You choose us and you give us faith and you welcome us into your family and we, we turn away from our sin and you help us to change. Thank you for your love. Thank you for, for what that means for us. Would that be transforming our hearts, our lives? Would we feel it deep down so that we rejoice each day, so that we, we have the power to live for you in response? Help us today just to bask in the wonder of just how amazing your mercy is, of how vast it is, and how it's everything that we need is, is your love, your care, and being part of your family. Unite us in that wonderful truth, Lord. Amen.